0: What's going on nerds? Before we get to this episode of Nerds on History, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about our other podcast, Nerds on Film. Every week, Brian, Sarah, Kevin, and myself talk about movies, we make some jokes, and we say a lot of bad words. And if you're a fan of bad words, you're going to want to go listen to that podcast after you're done listening to this one because Nerds on History won't let us say fuck, mother fuck, huge and tiny little or enjoy this episode of Nerds
1: on History is brought to you by Eversleep Tea, the only tea made with 100% real arsenic.
0: Modifying a Chinese medicinal recipe that's been in use for over 2,000 years, we took the normal amount of arsenic in the recipe and modified it by a 1,000, plus added notes of hemlock for a nice earthy finish. But
1: don't take our word for it. Listen to some of these fantastic posthumous testimonials.
0: I once had Eversleep Arsenic Tea. It was quite delicious, but all of a sudden, nobody paid attention to me anymore. I talked to my family, but they don't hear me. I drank Eversleep, and now me and Bruce Willis keep trying to convince Haley Joel Osment to do stuff for us.
1: Boy, when I heard about Eversleep, I thought I really need a pep in my step. Ah, 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 ah,
0: ah, ah. Ah! Soothing people into oblivion. Never sleep Tea, the only tea that starts off green and ends up black. Warning, this is not actually an ad. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Eric, how are you, sir? I'm quite well, sir. How are you? I am not. Oh. Actually, I'm, I'm doing okay. I just... my... My voice has been pretty hoarse the past couple of days, and it yeah. doesn't sound like that now, but, um, yeah, it's been kind of hard, especially at rehearsals, because uh, the part of my voice that is cracking and majorly messed up is the exact range I need, I need to be singing in, so...
1: Oh, how yeah. convenient.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is probably a sign that I actually haven't been singing it properly. I haven't been supporting the notes properly, so that's probably why I, I can't sing. <clears throat> so
1: you know every guy you reap what you sell every guy has performance issues don't worry about it i
0: think this is a very different type of performance <laughs> issue than what you're referring to anyhow uh, anyhow indeed well my friend what a week what a week in listener feedback no kidding i think this is the most we've ever gotten in, in a one week. week
1: yeah i think so uh so go ahead sean cue it up this week in listener feedback i I still love hearing that every time okay uh we begin the week with uh jeremy jeremy (coughs) won our uh, trivia question this week on uh the uh, facebook page and uh he would like us to uh give a shout out this is the way that the uh, reward is given out
0: you get to tell us what you want us to say and we'll say it and here it goes so what does he want us to say because i'll do it you're gonna do it i'll do it oh fine all right jeremy here we go stacy blaine we're giving you our shout out roll tide all right. Rock on. Yeah. That was, was that good? That was good.
1: Okay. I don't know exactly what the inflection was meant to be, but I thought it sounded super.
0: Okay. Hopefully we did it justice. That was for Jeremy's wife, Stacy. Yes. So, yes.
1: Okay. Our next piece of listener feedback comes from Lindy in Georgia. Uh, Lindy just recently started listening to both the podcasts, and uh, she's working her way from the beginning. Uh, she's got an 11 year old who she uh, lets listen to Nerds on History, which I think is fantastic. Most of the episodes, vast majority of them. And uh, they do enjoy quite a bit of movies. In fact, he's seen a lot uh, for a young man his age. She just finished listening to the uh, Nerds on Film Say Goodbye to My Large Enemy. Uh, which was the the quiz show one that we did and she's uh she's quite pleased with that Uh, she thinks that uh, we should definitely have another one coming up and i think that we are going to do that so folks if you enjoyed that episode if you haven't heard it already go back and listen to uh say goodbye to my large enemy where we put a bizarro twist on famous movie quotes and what have you and we'll have another one actually coming soon to a nerds on film podcast near you Uh, She also mentioned the fact that we we never got an opportunity to actually put those questions up online. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back. uh, I'm going to go ahead and put those questions online when we do our uh, part two. So when we do our our next quiz show episode. Awesome. So thank you so much, Lindy, for uh, listening to both podcasts. And uh, to Lindy's uh, son, thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, learning and being smart. That makes me happy. Yeah,
0: (laughs) totally. I hope. You gotta yeah. love it. Yeah. Though, I think I am. I echo uh, some of David's concerns that, since she said 12?
1: 11, but he doesn't Eleven. listen to nerds on film.
0: Okay, good. Yeah.
1: She specified that. Yeah, He's but not she, quite ready for she that.
0: She let him listen to that episode. Because to that she had, one episode, Because yeah. she would heard it first. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a pretty tame episode for that podcast. It was, yes. Yes.
1: Alrighty, uh, next up we have some listener feedback. So this one comes to us from Justinus, uh, who is from Lithuania. Don't know if he's currently still living in Lithuania, but he's certainly from Lithuania. Uh, anyway, he wants to thank us for the hard work that we do on both of the podcasts. He thinks they are awesome and is always looking forward to new episodes. Uh, he's also uh, actually a pretty big fan of Nerds on Film, a little bit more, because uh, he's big on uh, on the movie culture. thinks it's really great. In fact, loves Sarah, giving her uh, big props, loves to hear uh, geeky girls geeking out, and who doesn't? Uh, had a little feedback about the website yeah. yeah I just want to throw it out there real quick folks we have a new Nerdonomy website coming to you soon uh, and keep in mind you know this is an in-house operation we're doing all this hard work here ourselves we're always happy to receive any suggestions and if you folks have any experience with uh, you know CSS coding or what have you let us know we're always happy to uh, to take some uh, some advice and what have you but uh, just wait Yeah, it's but- not done yet It's work in progress, very hard work in progress, and it'll be coming very soon. Also, uh, just kind of goes on to say that uh, he's looking forward to some video content that we might be producing in the future, and shameless plug for donations. If you want video content, give us donations. And uh, he thinks that we all really deserve some great attention, and you know what? Hey, thank you so much. It's kind of you to say, and uh, we hope that uh, we will get that attention as more of you folks spread the nerd word or the word the, of nerd. The word of nerd. The word of Yead. nerd. Okay, next one comes from Megan. Uh, Megan was absolutely tickled pink by our reference to Barbados in our uh, previous uh, uh, episode. That was in reference to you possibly winning
0: the lottery. <laughs> that is correct. Yes. Which I didn't. No, we didn't. Which Did was you? sad.
1: Uh, anyhow, she was born I in I bought
0: a whole <laughs> island on your hopes. I'm ruined! I'm, I am so I'm ruined. <laughs> My great grandchildren will be ruined because of you.
1: (laughs) Anyhow, uh, Megan was born in Canada, raised in Barbados. Would love to hear a history of Barbados, and I thought you know it would be really neat to do a history of the uh, of the Caribbean, uh, including Barbados, obviously. So, who knows? Future episode. I'm thinking it's got uh, quite a bit of potential. Sure. Okay. Next one comes from uh, Adam. Adam is 14 years old from Ireland. I love the Irish.
0: We, we've gotten so many people from Ireland to listen to us. And by say by so many people, I mean like five. But there's probably more than that. And of course, being of Irish descent. Both of us, actually. Yeah. yeah. Being of Irish descent, uh, it just warms my heart. That's all. Anyway, he has just general
1: praise, as he says in the subject of his email. In addition to a uh, suggestion for a future episode, he wants to hear about weapons. History of weapons. Which we have uh, in the books, I think, somewhere. I, yeah. I, I'm
0: pretty sure we have that. On our to-do list already.
1: I think so. That is true. Uh, Also, the Shogun. He wants to hear more about the Shogun. We're going to talk about the Shogunite. We've we've kind of talked about us
0: talking about it potentially the future before. That will happen. We had a meeting that involved talking about us talking about the topic. Yes, (laughs) We do that a lot. Yes.
1: Nothing gets really done. Anyhow. Uh, And, of course, the Great Famine. Got to throw it out there. Oh, yeah, of
0: course, because that's a big reason why uh, the Irish immigrated to the United States. Mm
1: -hmm. And here's another one for you. Uh, He wants to do uh, French Revolution, which, uh, you know, hey, lame is boy.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean. Well, okay, It's a tie in. So there were multiple French revolutions. So which one do you want to do? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The one that people mostly associate as the French Revolution was the one of 1789. Uh, But there was like two or three that got France to being an actual republic to what we know of today
1: all right and our last one comes from david david says dudes i'm assuming he implies the whole full california accent uh i've only been listener for a couple of months but i'm really enjoying your podcast he references the hot dish comment that we made in the past oh, episode
0: oh thank you so clarifying please what does this hot dish mean
1: apparently hot dish is as un-californian as possible and he totally forgives you brian for not knowing essentially what it means uh and it is a and i forgive you as well in fact you know what i want to take this opportunity to apologize on air are you serious no but let's move on with the listener feedback
0: you' <laughs> being difficult eric
1: <laughs> yes i am he says it's very much a North Midwestern term that encompasses pretty much all kind of dishes that are that are very, uh, as he puts it, loaded with fat and starch and have nothing to resemble a vegetable. Okay. Um,
0: so sounds hearty, like my kind of meal. Yeah,
1: hearty kind of home cooked meals. Um, like a tamale pie, for example, is one that he uses uh, as an example. There. He also mentions this awesome awesome recipe that's more or less like shepherd's pie only it's ground beef and then it has the you know in a baking dish and it's got the canned soup on top yeah but then it's got tater tots on top
0: oh so you get the nice little crunchy texture yes the tots Ooh, it's it's just it's nerd food yeah that's what that is it's total nerd food yeah so somebody please
1: make us this and send it to us (laughs) that is all Uh, in fact, that is not all. He also would like us to, uh, do a history of food, which, whew, big topic. Uh, we'll have to narrow that down a little bit, of course, but, um, you're the big foodie. We can, we can figure something out. What are you trying to say, Eric? You like food and you like talking about it? Okay, good. Don't worry. You look great. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, whew, that was one hell of a marathon listener feedback session, but there you go. Ten minutes later, here we go. Yeah, I know. Cool. Thank you, listeners, for bearing with us. No problem. Real quick, though, I do want to reference, super fast, a listener feedback that we had had last week. And this came from Hillary, and she had actually suggested a history of tea. And you and I kind of started talking about this after we finished recording the episode last week. And we thought, you know what? That is actually really fascinating. And not just tea. What if we talked about coffee as well? Because let's face it, when it comes down to... Besides water, you know, what are the big drinks that are out there
0: in the world? Yeah, pretty much it's those three. I mean, soda's become a big one now as well, right, but soda has a very young history to it. It's only about a 100, 120 years old at this point,
1: right, with the history of tea, I mean we're talking about going back thousands of years, three thousand yeah. years and coffee China. we're
0: talking about five or six hundred years now, yeah, so it's I mean as a drink, so
1: which is which is pretty impressive. So, let's go with it. Let's, <coughs> let's chat about it, because I think that, um, I mean, this is going to be a heck of an episode, because it is really quite something.
0: Yeah, we've got, a, I mean, there's a lot of content for us to actually get through. But you know what, folks? As always, it's an adventure. Always. That we, that we go on. Uh, let's start chronologically, which I believe means we turn it over to you, because that starts with T.
1: Right. I went ahead and decided to take on T. Uh, partially because of your experience and knowledge of coffee already existing, which is which is pretty impressive. And maybe it's a little bit of a challenge to myself, because uh, the truth is that uh, I've never really drunk tea. I have a hyper for caffeine, so I actually stay away from coffee and tea in general. But I've always found it to be rather fascinating, particularly the impact that it has on cultures around the world and the very fact that it essentially carved out the British Empire. And that's not some stereotypical reference to the British-loving tea, there's a very specific reason why
0: the British love tea. Well, it's referenced by Guy Ritchie, actually, in the movie uh, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Burls. There's a whole bit when they said, The entire British Empire was built on tea. And I, all of a sudden I slipped into Michael Caine. I apologize. <laughs> I was trying to do Cockney, and Michael Caine is Cockney. So forgive me. I'll just say it in English, in American English. The entire British Empire was built on tea, and I do not want to go into battle without a cup of one. And so, but you know there what? You it's so true, though. Uh,
1: and that's just one example among many of how tea has really greatly, richly influenced world culture. Uh, it, it really is pretty incredible. And it all comes back to China again, an uh, area of history that I've never been particularly well versed in, which challenged me and gave me the opportunity to learn uh, a little bit more. And I'll tell you, absolutely fascinating. We We think of tea, right? And we think of all the different varieties of tea that are out there. In fact, there are close to 1,500 varieties of tea that exist in the world. Some of them are herbal. Most of them originate from the actual tea plant. And that's the thing. You think of black tea, and you think of, uh, you know, o'olong tea, and you think of of green tea as being the, the three major teas that are out there. And you think maybe, oh, okay, perhaps they all originate from somewhere else. They all originate from a different variety of, of tea plant. But they don't. They all come from the same parent plant. It's just the way that they're treated produces the different types yeah,
0: of tea. I I was under the impression that green tea and black tea are actually of the same type of leaf, even. Just they are. Yeah, just that green tea is a not as dried of a tea, I think.
1: Yeah, all, all the major varieties of tea are hmm. all from the same plant, or one very slight variation in the form of that plant, you know,
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it's in, been reclimatized elsewhere. Right. Um, but you'll find that they're all pretty much the same. And what we're talking about is from uh, Camellia sinensis, uh, which is... The tree that we're talking about or the, the shrub really in bush uh at least it's treated as such now the the truth is if it's left un uh untrimmed these trees can grow to be 30 40 feet tall they're actually quite large uh, but to make them cultivatable to make them able to be easily and quickly picked they usually keep them shortened to around maybe four five or six feet mm. uh, so you can uh, quickly get at the leaves there and you'll find that tea drinking in china goes back thousands of years. Uh, there's an emperor of legend, uh, Shen Nying, And Shen Nying lived in around 2737 BC. This is the first wow. instance where he is connected through mythology to Ti. Now, whether this myth is true or not, is highly debatable. And I actually, I think it's probably not very debatable. It's probably made up. But what's interesting is that he was thought to have been a bit of a herbalist. He was thought to have been very in tune with wanting to uh, take advantage of his many medicinal purposes from all these different plants that he would find on his journeys or when he was out on campaign or what have you. And the legend tells that uh, one day when he's uh, out in the field, uh, he preferred to have his water that he would drink boiled first. He wanted to make sure that it was clean. And uh, one of the servants, whilst off boiling the water, had done so underneath a tree. And unbeknownst to the servant, some leaves from that tree fell into the water, were boiled along with it, and in his rush to get it back to the emperor, didn't notice that the water had actually turned brown. And the, uh, the emperor apparently was quite thirsty and didn't notice it either, and he began to drink it and noticed the taste was quite off, but uh, enjoyed it, liked it, and found that it had healing properties. And as such, tea was born in China. At least that's how the, the myth starts out. So some of the first recorded instances of drinking tea in China uh, actually date to about 1000 BC. So they're really not all that far off from the mythical start. Obviously, you know, Chinese medicine is extremely advanced and has been for thousands and thousands of years. We find that... uh, you know, through these records, that obviously they were experimenting with so many different types of uh, you know plant life that were out there and, and trying to find its value. And the medicinal value of tea is well known today. In fact, it is great for preventing uh, heart disease. Uh, it fights some forms of cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been associated with weight loss in the terms of drinking pure green tea, right? Uh, it, it has. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Yeah,
0: coffee has got a very interesting combination of things too because. Coffee has been shown to reduce the the risks of some cancers, like uh, I think bladder cancer. Hmm. At the same time, they've also it's been told it's not necessarily good for you because for your heart because of the high caffeine content. Uh, so it's it's very interesting how tea has very few nutritional detriments that could be associated with it, whereas coffee is really just a, a giant list of trade offs. Yeah, depending on your own biological makeup. Yeah, well, you know, it it's certainly
1: started out that way in China in terms of being used for medicinal purposes, but quickly uh, it was, you know, used very much for the upper class in terms of you know a a sophisticated drink that was drunk. Mm -hmm. It was a symbol of the upper class, and then it became associated with the priestly class. So it very quickly got absorbed into Buddhism in China, and tea and spirituality now go hand in hand. Uh, and it's what really led to the initial spread of tea outside of China, because as Buddhism began to spread into Japan, you found that these tea customs and tea ceremonies that are now very common throughout China and other parts of Southeast Asia have really just kind of perpetuated the way that tea spreads. It's almost as if you know uh, you, you would view wine in, in Christianity, and particularly in the Catholic Church, in the way that wine is symbolic, uh, tea is very much symbolic to Buddhism.
0: Oh, absolutely! And there's so many ceremonies that involve even the making of the tea. Like when you're making the tea, it's almost like your mind has to be in a certain state to be able to perform the exactly. whisking of the of the leaves into the the water
1: it's it's a very symbolic process yeah and not only that but the caffeine in the tea actually assists with many buddhists in their you know very long duration meditations it allows them to stay awake while they are in this very tranquil state of mind it allows their bodies to still stay stimulated even though mentally and you know spiritually ultimately which is where they want to be is at that kind of higher level
0: if you will i will have to say just from my own personal life I've been running a pretty grueling schedule lately, and what's been getting me through it is, yes, I have my coffee in the morning just to get my system, you know, just going and get myself awake. But my mid-morning, normally a second cup of coffee has been replaced by green tea, Uh, actually green tea with with mint, and it is awesome because I don't feel jittery after I I drink it. I just feel awake. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So when did all that start happening? Well, in around 900 A.D., So about, let's just call it, um, let's just call it around 1,000 A.D.
0: So we're still talking about 4,000 years almost between when green tea or tea was eventually created to when it started to have an impact in in Buddhism and then... About
1: 3,000 years. Yeah. So
0: yeah, tea was drunk in China
1: for a very, very long time uh, before it ever even reached outward. And, uh, you know, part of that is just the the very nature of of Chinese culture, and being a very closed off and isolated society for so very long, um, you found that uh, this was was kind of to be expected, almost. Um, But eventually, again, through Buddhism and through the spread of religion, we find that the tea begins to spread at least into other parts of Asia. How it gets to Europe is an even more fascinating story. Because we can thank the Portuguese and the Dutch for introducing tea
0: all the way over to Europe. You mentioned the Dutch. Very good. Well, they come into play a little later in our story. So continue on.
1: The Dutch East India Trading Company, along with the British East India Trading Company, would really be the driving forces behind spreading not so much just tea, but actually so much of Eastern culture around the world uh, and sharing that with, uh, with the rest of the world. So here we have in around the 1600s, right? So 17th century, Portuguese traders, very early in that century, were coming in, bringing back this tea. And it's interesting because in some places they tried to introduce it, it just didn't catch on. Like Russia, for example. There was a lot of trade going on at that time between Russia and China, and the Chinese ambassadors were actually bringing tea, and it was scorned. People didn't like it. They thought it tasted awful, and they thought it would never catch on. And it would actually be 70 years later than its first introduction, uh, you know, and early in the 17th century, that it would finally make its way back to Russia and become a very, very popular drink. Now, Hmm. Chinese tea is imported into Russia on a very regular basis and has been for several hundred years. When it comes to the Portuguese, it was trendy. It was a fad, but it wasn't really a big uh, cultural explosion. It didn't really catch on all that much. It actually caught on a lot more so in Amsterdam. Um, But you'll find that it is, in fact, the Portuguese that reintroduce it back to the biggest fanatics for tea. And that is, of course, the British. So uh, when Charles II of England married his Portuguese wife, Catherine, she brought with her some tea and introduced it to him. Uh, He introduced it to the rest of his court. And even though it had been in Europe for almost 60 years at this point, uh, now it had really, really caught on. And now it was very symbolic of the upper class uh, in England. And people went nuts for it. And they demanded tea. They wanted a lot. And so, obviously, they went to China to get it. So, you're familiar, of course, with the East India Trading Company. Yeah. The British East India Trading Company. Well, it was created by Queen Elizabeth in 1600. Yes. Uh, And with that was created essentially a royal monopoly. Here was going to be a very, very powerful organization that could pretty much in anywhere it wanted and set up and monopolize on the trade because they had all the ships they had all the wealth that was being funded by the crown they could do whatever they wanted and when they got to china and realized the potential for for tea they were trying to import it into england by the boatload the thing is though the chinese were very much of the mindset that they had everything they needed they don't need stuff from outside of china the only thing they need and want is silver silver bullion and that was something that uh, they had to pay if they wanted to get their tea, the British, that is. So you have the situation now where they're trying to come up with as much silver as possible because the demand for the tea is so high. Uh, and the taxation of tea begins to skyrocket. And you'll find that at the height of this tax that was placed on it, 119% tax was being paid on tea. In wow. England. Yeah, it was absolutely insane. And... England started running out of silver to give to China. So they came up with a really insidious idea. The uh, East India Trading Company decided that opium, which they had now found a slight market for in China, could be something that they could very easily exploit. And they began growing opium in India, another one of their very large land holdings that they had, uh, they had conquered in part of the, the British Empire's expansion, and decided to start uh, importing opium into China. And China became kind of aware of what was going on and was not terribly pleased, because by 1729, uh, there had only been a recorded 200 chests of opium imported into China. Uh, by the time China had kind of gotten wind of what, you know, England was trying to do and, and started passing etiquettes stating that opium was to be illegal and should not be brought into China, uh, you now found an average of 4,500 chests were being imported. Wow. And that was in the year 1800. So, they developed this black market. And because India and China share a common border... They were able to essentially smuggle and bring in opium uh, in exchange for large, large quantities of silver. So the silver was being recycled almost. It was being brought back into China, uh, being paid for with opium. Now, you would think that 4,500 chests sounds like that would be a pretty lucrative business. You wouldn't really need to do much more than that, but that didn't stop the East India Company uh, 30 years later by raising the bar. And by the time the very first opium wars were started between Britain and China in 1838, it had climbed to 40,000 chests. Wow. That's only 38 years uh, to see that kind of increase. Uh, you would see that continue to rise uh, through <clears throat> the first Opium War and on to the second. It's absolutely amazing. That ultimately accumulated in this full-on, outright warfare between China and Britain, All of this over tea. That's really just what they wanted was tea. It wasn't so much the opium. The opium was something they used to exploit the the Chinese so that they can get enough silver to buy the tea, but it was in such hot demand in England that it led to two wars over
0: the tea. And at this point we didn't really know all of the effects that opium we knew it was obviously can be smoked and we knew that it could be it would have you know pain-dampening effects on that, but we didn't know.
1: Opium's medicinal quality is yeah. obvious. But once opium started being combined with tobacco and could actually be smoked at that point, another cash crop that, you know, the British were exploiting from America, uh, they were able to go ahead and realize it's, it's intoxicating possibilities right away and that it was so easily accessible now. So there was definitely this idea of, hey, these people want drugs, let's give them drugs, let's get the money for it so we can have our tea. It's a pretty high cost for tea. Yeah, no kidding. But of course, the average British citizen had no idea what was going on. All they knew is that they had this lovely drink, and they wanted to drink it, and they'd be willing to pay whatever they could get for it. It's a shame that most of them ended up drinking sheep poop. What? So much was this demand for tea. that In times of war, when the tea was going down, or in times of high taxation, there was a black market tea ring that's going on where you have uh, this... uh, (laughs) quote-unquote tea being sold to, uh, to the commoners who, who were wanting to you know, get as much of it as possible. And this stuff was hardly tea. It was usually about 50% tea. Uh, the rest of it was twigs and leaves that they just pick up off the ground. Uh, so you had, you had actually sheep dung being used to kind of give it this uh, darker, richer color. Uh, and then, you know, along with that, you had actually lead chromate being added in as well. Wow. Yeah, so you're drinking sticks, poison essentially, lead and sheep dung, and that was your tea. And this got really, really bad. Uh, There was nearly fifty million pounds of this stuff being produced in 1770. Almost half of all tea being drunk by English, uh, by the English, was this concoction, this bootlegged tea that was being spread around.
0: That's awful.
1: It is. It's pretty terrible. So, you know, here, here we have a, a huge situation now where the British, and tea in particular, are kind of spreading around the world. And in India, they found an opportunity, because while opium had long been now established as being the, the cash crop for India so that they could, you know, sell that to the Chinese for their tea, they thought, well, forget this. We've <clears> already gone to war twice. Why don't we just start growing our own tea in India? And now India becomes closely connected with tea, Uh, And again, it is the East India Company that is funding all of this and making it all possible. In fact, by this point in the 1850s, they had a more powerful navy than the British Navy itself. They were that powerful because of all the money that was coming out of Asia uh, and the, the monopolies that they were creating. Wow. And with this, they created and changed the entire ecology of South India they pretty much took over and started planting seed uh, seedlings from these Chinese tea trees that they were you know, getting out of the country and trading out. And within three years, which is all the time it takes for a, a sapling to start producing tea leaves, they were ready to go. And uh, it, it's pretty incredible because in 1855, 500,000 pounds of tea was being produced in India. By 1890, guess how much?
0: And when when did it start being grown I'm sorry? 1855. Okay, so in by about 30 45 years. Basically. 45 years later. From or no, 30
1: th- you're right, 35 years later.
0: So from 500,000 pounds I'm mm-hmm. going to guess 20 million.
1: 86 million Whoa.
0: pounds. Wow. Seriously? Yeah, seriously. Wow.
1: Surpassing China at that point in terms of exports of tea. And with that came the indentured slavery. That was being treated on these plantations and we had millions of indians being treated in this fashion Uh, many of them thousands of them every year died from deplorable conditions that they were in and many of them were not being paid at all many of them it was just a a way for them to survive off of the streets to you know have a a roof over their head or what uh, accounted for a roof it was more like a shack over their head And when they were actually getting paid, it was in minuscule amounts. And they were pretty much owned by the plantation owners. This was indentured servitude. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And they even looked to the American at that time, the then-American model of the Escaped Slave Act, uh, as being something that they wanted to enact. And so if you were caught trying to flee from one of these plantations, it was oftentimes your life. Mm. And it was absolutely, absolutely terrible. Honestly, it's not all that much better today because tea is still being produced in extremely large quantities in India. All of these these tea plantations that were set up 150, 200 years ago are still there and still producing, some of them with the original trees, which I find absolutely amazing that these tea trees can survive for a long time. The oldest surviving one is actually in China right now, in the Yunnan province. And it comes from uh, the 1700s, or from the 1800s. It's like 1700, I think, is, is and around it was dated. Wow. Which is pretty incredible how resilient this plant can be. But people in India today who are picking tea leaves for a living only earn $1.20 every day for their work. And it's not easy work. Uh, picking tea leaves is difficult. Hmm. And to bring it to a little bit of a, a lighter note... In my research, one of the most interesting things that I found was some of the myths surrounding tea and its and its cultivation. And one of them comes from China and was created around the time that Europeans first started uh, contact with China. And it's interesting because you, you think about all the tea that's being produced, all the tea leaves that are coming out. How could they possibly have such a huge workforce to do it? Well, one of the myths says that the Chinese actually use monkeys to pick tea. So what do you think? I think it's garbage, because the story says they would take monkeys, put them in the field, harass the monkeys, the monkeys would get mad, pick the tea leaves, and then throw them at the people who would then catch them and store them.
0: (laughs) That seems to be a lot of
1: work. Yeah, you know, they've tried the harassed monkey technique in uh, in other forms of agriculture, just doesn't have the the same effect. Bananas? Disastrous. Absolutely
0: disastrous.
1: We don't even want to talk about it. (laughs) Um,
0: they probably just started eating most of them, right?
1: <laughs> Exactly. It was it was pandemonium.
0: Yeah. Um, but they did fling plots of poo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, what's interesting, though, is... Question, the, did they ever fling peas? Uh, uh, funny.
1: <laughs> what I do find interesting is the origin of this myth actually probably dates to the way that tea trees were originally treated. Because they were much taller, remember I said. They weren't cultivated until later on and kept yeah. small. And so people were climbing up into the tea trees themselves to pick the leaves and they would be climbing in there like monkeys. So that's probably where it came from. It probably became a term used for people who were picking leaves because it was associated with an a older figurative practice. term basically, yeah. Yeah, and then it obviously got turned into these ridiculous myths. I see. You know, I mean, what is not a myth though is that tea is huge now. And even in the modern world today, tea is Absolutely loved the most common form is still black tea, and that 's because of the british and because of the majority of tea that they are producing ninety five percent of it throughout most of uh well actually throughout all of the time that tea's been cultivated and produced is done with black tea and again, the process for making tea in a nutshell hasn 't changed for thousands of years, right? You pick the leaves, you dry them to a certain extent, usually to uh, if if you go by modern standards today it 's about sixty eight percent of their original hydration level is left behind right and then well you start grinding them up and you grind it up into a powder and you let it oxidize because there's an enzyme that's inside the tea that when it you know meets with the air it produces this very strong and distinct flavor that you get from black tea so the longer that you leave it oxidizing the other forms of tea that you get like black tea white tea oolong tea you, you have all these different varieties of it. Green tea in its purest form, though, it's the exact opposite. When they pick it, they try to stop it from drying as quickly as possible by steaming it. Uh, and then they grind it up, and then it itself pretty much doesn't oxidize at that point. And that is the, the truest form of tea. That's what the tea that has been drunk in most of Asia has been for so very long. It's been
0: green tea. Primarily well, there's green. also white tea, right, where it's basically just a young tea leaf. right. Before it has really a chance to mature.
1: So essentially, well, yeah, that, that that's part of it. And there's actually different varieties of tea leaves now, where they're smaller compared to their larger counterparts. Right. And they have different uh, quantities of the enzymes. Right. inside. And there's it.
0: also um, uh, there's red teas. I think you can even get that mm-hmm. are from Africa. You know, there's like, tea is so versatile now. But a lot of them also are herbal too.
1: Right. And at that point, it's not really tea, tea. in the sense of what we're talking about. No,
0: it's just tea because it's been steeped in water. Yeah. Uh, and so we're calling that process tea. Sure, but it's interesting to think that that has become so synonymous with the process of brewing because that's what it was originally derived from. Yeah, was tea,
1: and tea has since spread out around the world. Uh, there, you know, some of the the largest countries in the world cultivate tea: China, India, in addition to other places like in Kenya, uh, which is well known for its coffee, but also for its tea, uh, and places like Argentina as well. So you have just all this opportunity to produce all sorts of different kinds of tea. Uh, I think it's pretty incredible that uh, at this point, 60 billion pounds of tea leaves are picked every year around the world today. And uh, five pounds pretty much dries down to one pound of processed tea. Uh, But behind water, tea is the second most drunk liquid in the world.
0: Interesting. I imagine coffee would be a close third.
1: It uh, depends where you are in the world. In the yeah. United States, it's sixth. Tea is sixth,
0: excuse me, in the United
1: States. Coffee, I think, is actually uh, third, right behind soda now. I think soda overtook coffee. I'm not sure. But it's it's definitely far more up there. Uh, and I have no doubt that that has to do with the, the history of tea in the United States. Because keep in mind, the colonies uh, in the U.S. were very much British. They were British citizens. They thought of themselves as such and caught on to British trends, including tea. That's why we had this big kerfuffle with the Boston Tea Party, right? So 1773, bunch of people go on there on the ships that are docked in <clears> Boston's harbor and they throw out a whole bunch of the tea, a very valuable commodity, as protest to being taxed so high on it. And that anti-British sentiment that came from that and came from the Revolutionary War led to an anti-tea sentiment. And tea was very much seen as being, ooh, not a good drink. Instead, there was mm. something else.
0: Well, okay. So, I feel like there might be some legend associated with this. Mm. Yes, of course, we can't deny that the Tea Party actually took place. Of course, it did. There was a very strong anti-British sentiment before the Re- the Revolution, as well as going up until probably World War One. There was an anti-British feeling. Yeah. Um,
1: but there were actual protests going on in the colonies to stop <clears throat> people from drinking tea.
0: Sure. Sure. However, coffee was already a prominent colonial drink. It, it, coffee was definitely pre- prominent in Europe by this point in time and had certainly made its way over to America's with tea. So it wasn't like they were switching over to something all, altogether different. It was already present. They were just going with one over the other.
1: Right. now, Now they had an excuse to exclude tea. Now they needed to replace it with something else. And why not replace it with coffee?
0: Coffee's delicious. And coffee was already there, exactly. And speaking of which, let's talk about coffee. Because there's a lot of interesting parallels that deal with tea's expansion. In fact, I would uh, would pretty much say that coffee and tea have the same talking points as far as how did it expand into Europe Mm -hmm. and how did it expand into the Americas for that same reason. It pretty much involved the British and the Dutch. Uh, as well as, in the, I mean, of course, other countries in Europe as well. But those, I think, were the two main colonial powers, since they had presences in other parts of the world, that could have really gotten that production and, and spread
1: it out Spread everywhere. it out, exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, let's start with where coffee begins. Not unlike tea, there is a legend behind how coffee was discovered. So uh, where do you think coffee comes from originally?
1: Well, I, I know that it certainly originates in North Africa.
0: Yes, uh, actually, you are 100% correct. What country, though?
1: I'm not going to say Egypt, because I know that's wrong.
0: No, but you're very close.
1: I'm going to say what is now modern-day Libya? Morocco?
0: No, Ethiopia, actually. Ethiopia?
1: Oh, really? Okay, so further south.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, but, you know, a neighboring you got sure. neighboring countries, so yeah. pretty, pretty close to it. Same overall region. Yeah,
1: still got the R- Nile. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's good times. Yeah. Here's what's interesting. Uh, Ethiopian highlands, so, you know, I, more mountainous parts mm-hmm. of it coffee actually does grow on mountains it grows best on mountains really yeah this is a very weird concept so for those let me just kind of give people my background my my ethos statement toward toward being able to to speak on this issue of coffee Uh, i worked at starbucks for almost four years in fact folks you can't see but brian is actually wearing an apron i still have my apron actually somewhere (laughs) i think i have it stowed away somewhere uh, as just a keepsake, or at least I had actually five at one point, but I threw all the other ones away. That doesn't really mean much because there are plenty of people who have worked at Starbucks sure. come and gone. Uh, but when I was at my tenure at Starbucks, I was in training to become a coffee master.
1: Ooh, the coffee master.
0: The coffee master, which gets you a black apron. It's pretty cool.
1: It also gets you extremely high blood pressure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, to become a coffee master, you have to go through extensive training to understand the process with which coffee is made. Hmm. Uh, by modern standards, of course. And then you do lots and lots of tasting of coffee. And there's so many different things that can influence coffee. It's very much like wine. Yeah. Uh, in the, the subtleties and the notes that come from where it's grown, from how it is brewed, that impact the kind of flavor profile you get out of the coffee. Hmm. How it's roasted, of course, is a major part of it as well.
1: Even even more elements, it seems, in what's influencing the the
0: taste of tea. Correct. Coffee pretty much comes from three areas of the world. And they're all equatorial zones. Mm. Because we find that uh, technically you can go grow coffee plants anywhere. But they grow at their best in equatorial zones on the, on the planet.
1: So kind of hot, humid kind of environments.
0: Yeah, but yet still in mountainous regions, which I find very, very interesting.
1: Yeah, that's strange.
0: Um, not, not always, though. I, want, I don't want to say with 100% certainty. But there's definitely where it grows there. In fact, there's certain species of coffee that only grow in the shade on on the shady side of a mountain. It's kind of interesting. And Starbucks has so many different varieties of coffee that we can go into. I'm not going to go into every single one because we'd be here till next Thursday. So uh, what we will do instead is take it back for a little bit. Pretty much know this. Coffee comes from North Africa, Latin America, because it it grows all the way through. Pretty much the Andes, anywhere where the Andes touch it is where coffee is being grown. And then Indonesia.
1: And I'm assuming that it started in North Africa and spread out.
0: And I will get to how it got there uh, in a little bit but yes essentially that's why we have the British and the Dutch to think gotcha for those and we'll talk about that later but it all starts in Ethiopia and as the story goes there was a sheep uh, sorry not a sheep a goat herder or just a goat herd named Kaldi, who uh, noticed that, that no, there are these coffee trees, and coffee itself derives from the Arabic word uh, kaveh, so uh, K-A-U-V-E-H, pretty much phonetically very close to the word, just spelled differently. Kava, I think. Yeah. Kava? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. So anyway, he noticed that his goats were picking off these cherries off of this tree. Hmm. And as he was eating them, he noticed that their goat's behavior started becoming <laughs> more high-spirited. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the herd, the herd's just going all over the place. <laughs> this goat over here is eating another goat. What's going on?
0: And one goat just started screaming. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like they were just going nuts and like beating each other up. They just they were moving around a lot. They were just a lot more, you know, fidgety. less. Fidgety. Exactly. <laughs> they were a little more fidgety. <laughs> Uh, and so what you basically were noticing is that the the pit of the – because, I mean, obviously goats can eat the plant anything. whole. Yeah. The pit of the coffee cherry is what they kind of eventually discovered was, oh, this is the magic. This is where uh, you find the caffeine. And in this time – and this is, by the way, probably – I mean, it's definitely in the second millennium, but I would say pr- it, it can't be anything less to, than the Middle Ages – at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah. So actually, quite a bit later than than teas It was a late. It was a late arrival, definitely. Late T, bloomer. Exactly. Uh, as it turns out, they discovered that it could be uh, eaten, and I, I didn't find any any research to back this up. But there's another legend that it was originally just a snack food, where they would take the beans and they would just kind of roll them up in uh, some sort of animal fat that was present from I guess a probably goat pro- pro- <laughs> probably goat fat of all things. Just pop them in your mouth and chew on them, like just. Eat them, eat them like like, like nuts, basically, hmm. to get the kind of peppiness out of it. And eventually they found that it was probably better that they dry the bean first. And this is actually what the most uh, historically natural method of doing coffee, which is literally you just l- take out these mats, you lay a bunch of coffee cherries out, and you let the sun do the rest of the work. The so sun well, dries off the rind of the skin until there's nothing left but the bean.
1: And that's how coffee grows, because I'm a total coffee... Ignoramus, I don't know anything about coffee.
0: Yeah. It grows literally as
1: a fruit? Yes, it
0: is the pit of a fruit. It's the pit of a cherry.
1: No kidding.
0: Yeah. Huh. Yeah, the bean itself isn't even a bean. It's just the pit of a cherry. But then again, most beans are. Like, the cocoa bean is the right. pit of a cocoa fruit, That's basically. Okay,
1: that's true. That's so,
0: true. I mean, the word bean is re- used very, very loosely because it's just the shape. Right, exactly. Of it. It's just a pit, right? So, of course, the pit's bright green when it's originally... Picked out. Mm-hmm. So uh, then, of course, you get into the roasting process. Now, I don't have anything on the history of coffee roasting, so forgive me uh, in that regard. But I'm assuming that the sun just kind of did most of that work over the, in the drying process. Probably a safe bet. Interesting to note the darker you roast coffee, the less caffeine you have. Hmm. So, in other words, the stronger the flavor of the coffee is, the less potent it is.
1: That's interesting.
0: Yeah. I guess it gets cooked out then or not cooked yeah, out? Yeah, pretty per se, much. You it gets can't. evaporated out in yeah. the process. So, um, Can you imagine that goat herder though? Oh, man, those goats would have been just going crazy. Well, not just that, but he's like,
1: my God, I've been spitting out the pits for all these years when all I needed to do was just bite down and chew on them for a couple of minutes. I right. could be
0: goat herding for hours yeah. longer. Well, there's been a recent rediscovery of just of doing green coffee. And Starbucks actually did a, a prototype a couple of years ago where they took green coffee grounds and mixed it into like a cold drink, a cold natural energy drink. And uh, they mix it with other fla- natural flavors to kind of get... The buzz going for it. Very good, by the way. Very, very potent, as I might, might wow. add. That would be a
1: great name for like a coffee company, the, the Goat Pit Brew. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Goat Pit Brew.
1: <clears throat> you heard it here first on Nerdonomy, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there is in and of itself the legend, right? Uh, so then eventually some of these people got the idea that they could actually grind it and brew it. Yeah. And that we do start to see sometime in the 16th century. Uh, as it's documented, is uh, about the year 982, 962 AH. A- a- AH is the uh, after or uh, year of Hagira. It's uh, how the Muslim religion documents the time since Muhammad leaving, the Prophet Muhammad leaving uh, Mecca. Gotcha. So, uh, which lines up with about 1554 in the Common Era. And there's actually a quote here. It says, uh, "In the high guard, God-guarded city of Constantinople." as well as in ottoman legends generally coffee and coffee houses did not exist about that year a fellow named hakim or hakam from aleppo and uh, a wag called sems from damascus came to the city where they opened a large shop in the district of tatakale and began to brevet coffee huh. and uh, the coffee that the you'd be drinking is a very different coffee than we're used to drinking in america this is probably closer to the turkish brand of coffee we, we all know how tea is made, right? Tea, pretty much, you boil water, you put the tea leaves in, you have some sort of filtration process to extract the leaves from it, and then you drink it.
1: Many people, uh, in fact, in, in Asia today, they continue to drink
0: it with the leaves in. That's yeah. considered the, the free-leave way of drinking tea. And the leaves just kind of settle at the bottom, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, coffee started off the same way. Kind of hard to imagine that we don't filter really? out the grinds. Yeah. Huh. So, but here's the thing, though. We're talking about a much finer grind, We're talking about coffee that's pretty much ground to powder at this point. The Turkish ground of coffee is very much powder. Uh, And what it does is actually you boil the coffee three times using what's called a sevza. Uh, And it's also called uh, an ibrik, but sevza is the the original word for it. It's kind of a weird thing. It looks like a cup with legs (laughs) on it. And it's believed that at some point since we're talking about the African desert, uh, that it was just placed on the sand and that the heat that was being absorbed, since sand of course is just you know minerals of silicon, it can, it can transfer heat pretty pretty efficiently.
1: Oh yeah, it can.
0: Uh, uh, they would just put water in there and just let nature take its course. The funny thing is to, to brew Turkish coffee, you've gotta take it on and off the heat. So once it boils, you gotta take it off and let it stop boiling. And then you gotta put it back on again, back on, and you're stirring it as you're doing it. Basically what you're doing is you're emulsifying the ground coffee into the water, hmm. and you get this kind of dark brown, foamy, what looks almost like sludge, but delicious sludge, because you put in a little bit of sweetener with it, and some people will drink it black like that, or you put it with, I mean, in America, it, uh, in America, it's more common to drink it with a little bit of cream, but uh, it is spectacular, and it's served in tiny little cups, You because know, you don't need much at that level right. to, to really get the effect oh, God, no. that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, uh, so this is the kind of coffee, that started happening in these coffee houses hmm. in the Middle East Yeah. by the 1500s. Now, how does it get to Europe, is the question. Or You have a question, I can tell. Well,
1: I just wanted to state that um, I have a friend, uh, her name is Tuba. And actually, I know her sister quite well as well. Her name is Batir, and they're from Turkey. Uh, or they were families from Turkey. And they, uh, they were telling me a little bit about how coffee in the Near East, and in Turkey in particular, and I know this very true to be in Egypt as well, is very much the social drink that people get together. Just
0: getting to that, yeah. Were you? Oh, okay. I, I, was, I don't yeah. mean to steal your thunder, That's but
1: fine. you know, people would get together in these in these cafes. They would oftentimes smoke hookah, and they would come together, and it was considered to be really this drink that that brought people together. In fact, if you go to Turkey now and you are invited into the home of of someone, you're oftentimes served either tea or coffee, and it's interesting because tea is a very recent addition to Turkey. Tea's only been in Turkey since the 20th century, and that's because of the fall of the
0: first Ottoman Empire. And that is more than likely how it got made its way to Europe, actually. Hmm. When we were talking about this episode, we were talking about how I made the assumption that, well, given that Ethiopia is in a part of the world where it is very heavily either Christian or Muslim at this point, and there are many Ethiopians who are like Ethiopian Orthodox or Ethiopian, Ethiopian Jew and Ethiopian... Uh, Muslim. Mm-hmm. So I was of the of the assumption that through the Islamic Empire is how it spread to Europe because of the conquest of, of Spain and so on and so forth. Uh, I was actually dead wrong. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I, I was kind of surprised. Uh, it simply comes back to the fact that just European travelers going to the Near East were being offered coffee through hospitality. And they the word traveled back to Europe of the beverage. And by the 17th century, coffee was becoming more and more popular because of that. Uh, what I find very funny, though, is as the cases of a lot of new things, people generally consider it the work of Satan. And coffee <laughs> was originally considered an invention of Satan because of how bitter it tasted. Oh, interesting! And it's this black, you know, liquid, right? So, huh. but you know, this is the 17th century we're talking about, so we don't have the most educated people, right. in the world at this point. Everything was evil. Yeah, I mean, this is where remember where uh, Newton was just like, you know, doing his work <laughs> at this point. Right. We didn't we didn't really even have modern science yet, so. Uh, That being said, the coffee houses that were in the Middle East were cultural hubs, absolutely cultural hubs, where people would go to hang out, to hear the news. Reporters came to these houses and reported the news to them. Hmm. And it's amazing to see how much has not changed about coffee houses since this time period. Because when you walk into a Starbucks, what do you generally expect to see?
1: Uh, a long line, at least seven hipsters, and some really overpriced bottles of water.
0: Okay, yes, that's all true. <laughs> However, if you were to sit there for a few hours at a time, I would say you would probably uh, you hear music in the background, mm, right? Right. Uh, if it was a good enough, depending on the coffeehouse, you'd notice there's just someone performing music. Right. Uh, occasionally, you find people playing chess, right? Sure, absolutely. Sure, sure. And people just reading the newspaper, right? Or keeping current on the news of the day. Mm -hmm. Every single one of those goes back. Interesting. As far back as the 16th century.
1: Huh. I'm sure if they had the internet back then, there'd be people browsing on their laptops, too.
0: (laughs) Probably, yeah. Wi-Fi would have changed everything at that point. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, yeah. And by the 18th century, we're noticing major cities in England, Austria, France, Germany, and Holland. Of course, Holland being, of course, the Dutch Empire. Or the Dutch Empire uh, all had coffee houses hmm. and uh, in the one I find very interesting was a, an English convention called the Penny University. Now what's that? So instead of you going to the coffee house and you paying for coffee, rather you pay for admission to the coffee house so Penny University was where oh. you, you paid a penny to enter and then once you got in then you had access to coffee and of course again all the same things we were talking about bulletins, newspapers, pamphlets. so did you have to keep did you have to pay for the coffee as well? No, your penny got you your admission of coffee.
1: That's got, you got you can sit there and just drink coffee all you wanted. Pretty much. You could drink 100 cups of coffee and die.
0: I don't think anyone ever took it to that extreme. <laughs> um, I, I, it depends on where you, who you go to. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, of course, so I mean, some people would say, no, it got you a cup of coffee. Okay. Right? There's also legend that the word tip was derived from around this period of time. Hmm. Truth be told, gratuities in of themselves have been around for thousands of years. Sure, But the word tip... Is, is uh the legend goes that in Penny Universities, it was to ensure promptness. You paid extra to ensure promptness. Hmm. T-I-P.
1: Interesting. That's very interesting.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Unfortunately, which is why I kind of like the word tip is thrown around so heavily. It's because tips by that nature really aren't tips. They're just our tip when you go to like a restaurant is to say thank you yeah. for, for good service, right? That's what gratuity is supposed to mean.
1: Well, you know, I find it super interesting because you mentioned that, you know, in the 17th century, a lot of people were concerned with coffee. They were kind of, it's kind of a controversy, in fact. Many Catholics were concerned whether or not they should actually be drinking it. Uh, and then Pope Clement VIII actually came out and said it was okay to drink coffee. And it became much more culturally accepted in, in Europe among its, its Catholic population. Yeah,
0: more than that. And again, it probably came back to just the nature of the fact of being a black, bitter, bitter-tasting bitter
1: liquid. Yeah, exactly. You know?
0: um, because this is a point in time where color means everything. Sure. And the symbolism behind the color means everything. So you see white, you immediately associate with purity. You see black, you immediately associate with everything the opposite Right. So, of course, you're going to see this cup of black liquid. You're like, hey, drink this. <laughs> <laughs> no. Which
1: is ironic because white in most cultures around the
0: world is associated with death. Yeah. Or the, you know the ethereal right yeah yeah I can see it um
1: what other quick thing to add on to this in coffee houses because you mentioned that you you yourself served you know as a barista mm-hmm. and uh, approximately what age were you
0: from the ages of 18 to 22
1: that is average in America in Italy do you know what the average age of a barista is
0: 35
1: <laughs> 48. Oh wow. Yeah. It is considered a respectable profession for you to retire into.
0: Oh, well, cuz it's an it's an art. It's an absolute art. And you know, I love working at Star- I love working at Starbucks. But Starbucks is very much of course a an industrialized version of coffee, right? Sure, it's a major corporation. So, right. So they do their best to maintain the quality of the coffee and to get some of the artistic nature of the coffee, but if you want a true artist, you go to you go to your mom and pop coffee shop and you get a really good barista. Who knows how to do that? And we'll talk about espresso drinks in, in in a little bit. What I think I find very, very interesting is by the seventeenth century, Eric, guess how many coffee houses there were in London? Seventeenth century
1: London. Or um, sorry, by
0: mid seventeenth century, yeah. By mid seventeenth century. So
1: around sixteen fifties. I'm gonna shoot really low. I'm gonna say there's ten.
0: Over three hundred.
1: Three hundred? Yeah. Really,
0: yeah, so clearly, at this point, coffee was extremely popular, Wow, in Europe, which is why I say that in America, it really wasn't that new. It was just an alter. it was a very present alternative, sure, really, right? Because all those cultural comforts that we had gotten in Europe had already made its way over at that point. What I find very interesting is how coffee made its way to other parts of the world as far as the cultivation of plantations. Huh. and you mentioned that uh, the slavery of tea plantations in India. It, I'm just going to it with this. It's almost certain that given the nature of Latin American history and the nature of I don't know too much about Indonesia, but slavery was certainly a part of coffee plantations.
1: I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, at the very least, deplorable conditions and more or less indentured servitude, which is not all that different from slavery in general.
0: And some people argue that it continues to this day. And I can... uh, yeah. So that's why we talk about fair trade coffee, and I'll talk about that (laughs) in a little bit, too. Uh, I only buy fair trade coffee, by the way. Good for you. So uh, it's, It's important, and I'll explain why.
1: I wish you could say I don't drink coffee because of moral obligations, but the truth is I just, I can't drink
0: yeah. caffeine. <laughs> uh, and so, um, yeah, the Arabs, who were pretty much dominating the, the production of coffee up until the 17th century, uh, they tried to maintain a monopoly on it. But the Dutch, uh, as you were mentioning with their, with their wanting to spread tea, were able to obtain seedlings of yeah. coffee beans. And their first attempts to grow them in India, as, as it turns out, uh, were, were failed hor- horribly. Um, Laughter <laughs> But here's what is interesting. They did have successful uh, attempts in Batavia on the island of blank in Indonesia. What do you think the name of this island's name was? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. It's got to be the island of Java. Yes, sir. The island. Well done, sir. Well done. The island of Java. That's where we get the good old name for coffee from. Hmm. Uh, is, or one of the nicknames for coffee. Yeah, one right? of the variations. Right. Uh, Indonesian coffee. By the way, Indonesian coffee, if anyone's ever wondering, if you're drinking your coffee and it tastes kind of earthy and kind of, it's got more more noticeable bitterness, and maybe even if you've got a more trained tongue, a kind of a spicy note to it, mm-hmm. more than likely it's coming from Indonesia.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah. And yeah. that's
1: just because of the soil that it's grown in? Yes, indeed. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And they soon expanded their cultivation of coffee uh, into other islands like Sumatra and Celebes. Uh, Sumatra is one of the tentpole brands of coffee from uh, that's available at Starbucks, hmm. and that's yeah, it's exactly as it sounds. Those trees, that coffee comes from trees in Sumatra. It's also one of the few coffees that they also offer in decaf as well. And so that's how you get it into Indonesia. How it gets to Latin America is even more interesting. The Dutch gave King Louis the Fourteenth a coffee tree as a as a gift. Hmm. And the this, I guess this would be the early 18th century, so about 17, early 1700s. And uh, someone picked a bean off of it, a guy named uh, Gabriel Leclue, and uh, he tried to smuggle it out. And this dude had a hell of a time getting it out of there. (laughs) Just this one little thing. Because on his trip back, he dealt with horrendous weather, someone who tried to destroy the seedling uh, because he knew what he was up to. Uh, And then when that failed, the ship was attacked by pirates. Holy crap,
1: it's the the freaking curse of the bean.
0: (laughs) The curse of the coffee bean, (laughs) yes. Um, However, he did manage to get it safely to the, uh, I believe, the island of Martinique, which uh, is in the Caribbean, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that one seedling thrived, and because of that, there were spread to over 18 million coffee trees on the island of Martinique alone. Within a 50-year time period. Wow. Yeah. That's, that was quick. Right. And you could argue from there, that's where it expanded. And, of course, beans were taken and then sprouted throughout all parts of Central and Latin America. And by that nature, by those two incidents taking place, basically, coffee was spread through thievery. <laughs> right? You had the Dutch stealing, stealing seedlings from the Arabs, and you had this guy, Le Clute, stealing from a coffee tree plant from... Of all people, the king of France.
1: Well, it's only fair. Tea was spread through drug trafficking and warfare.
0: Yeah. There you go. There you go. Isn't it lovely? Coffee and tea, the beverage of criminals. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have our
1: episode title.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay, so now we've gotten some insight into the fascinating histories behind coffee and tea. I would like to take it a little bit further, if you don't mind, in the time we have left. Sure. Sure. Because I know we're, we're running pretty close to, to our time cap here. And let's talk a little bit about, well, how do you brew coffee different ways? Because tea, yes, there's different methods for the most part. You can choose whether it's in a bag or it's in filtered or just pretty much the whole tea method. You also right? got
1: iced tea, which is actually 80% of the tea consumed in the United States is iced
0: tea. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all because it's freaking hot in the South. And yeah. that's, what the, that's the drink of choice with, with lots of sugar built into it. Which, by um, the
1: way, pretty much offends everybody in the world.
0: Oh yeah, because yeah. you're not supposed to have your tea sweetened. Yeah, uh, sweetened iced tea is just like seriously <laughs> America leading by ignorance. <laughs> just this episode's rife with awesome slogans. <laughs> so, America hurling towards
1: diabetes in every way
0: possible. <laughs> so, but coffee is more diverse because you've got the Turkish brand of coffee. Right? In the late 1880s post-industrial area, you have a guy in Italy by the name of Angelo Moriando getting a patent for the first espresso machine. And what derives... Now, the thing I find fascinating about coffee is you pretty much always need boiling water. You need boiling water for tea as well. Mm. But boiling water leaves good. Right? And then you let it cool down and put it over ice. That's tea. All right. So I would argue with that. But go ahead. Okay. But in the essential form of it. Okay. Yes, that's the one-binding thing. Coffee all depends on how you grind it, how much water proportion is there, where the bean came from, and uh, how fresh is the coffee. Uh, if coffee is too old, it doesn't have nearly the intense flavor uh, as it would if it had been let out. Tea, by its nature, is dried. So once it's dried, it can. I mean, that's to say that tea doesn't go bad because tea obviously can go stale after a while. But tea, if it's kept in a dry, dark place, it can. It can last for a long time. Sure. Yeah, coffee is meant to be kept in the same place, by the way. Dry, dark, kind of out of the the elements that could make it go bad. So in the nature of putting it even into espresso, the grind is slightly more coarse than what you have for Turkish coffee. And espresso actually is essentially a a more mechanized form of Turkish coffee uh, and a little more filtered because you basically take this powder-like coffee that's been pressed down into a pod-like area and you run boiling water over it at high pressure quickly and it's the same amount you would get from turkish coffee it's served in these little demi tosses these huh. maybe two or three ounces of coffee not very much that two or three ounces of coffee had by the way it has the same amount of caffeine as a full cup of coffee that we're used to having Poof. in the united states so it's much much more intense right yeah yeah um but in general you don't drink more than one shot of it at, sure. at, at a time because that's all you really need end up like
1: one of those goats
0: <laughs> exactly but then, of course, you started noticing that people like to know, start having milk with coffee. The and, latte. We'll see. There you go. So, the cafe latte sounds fancy. It just means coffee and milk. Yep. You know, the Spanish <laughs> okay. have their own, or, and the Mexican cultures have their own. Cafe con leche. Yeah. Same concept. Though the, met- the recipes and the methods are a little different, but it's just coffee and milk, right? Latte just means, hey, you, you heated up some milk, you got some froth on, on the top of the milk, you poured it in with the espresso, bam. Cafe latte. Cappuccino, on the other hand, is an entirely different matter. So cappuccino <laughs> The expression on your face when you said that just yeah. is hilarious. Cappuccino derives itself from the cappuccine monks, the friars of the Cappuccino Order, which oh. are an offshoot of the Franciscans, because the difference between a Franciscan monk and a cappuccin monk, would you be able to look at the differences of uh, one is, is shaking really violently <laughs> all the time. <laughs> no oh man we gotta Uh, get all this manuscript written really fast really fast well the the so this is where i can bring some catholic into it so the the cappuccine uh robes are a slightly lighter shade of brown so when people saw this foamy brown concoction they said oh they call it cappuccino because it looked like a little cappuccine monk basically if they just use a little more dye The name would have changed forever. (laughs) Exactly. We could be having a cup of Franciscans. (laughs) Uh, Which doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Not quite. No. How's that cup of Francisco going? Ah, he's strong today, boss. (laughs) So with cappuccino, it's pretty much mostly foam, mostly frothed milk. And you can have a cappuccino wet or you can have a cappuccino dry. Hmm. So what do you think is the difference? I don't know. Okay. It all depends on how you steam the milk.
1: Oh, all right. Oh, yeah. I should have guessed that. All yeah. right. Okay.
0: Because you, if you want like a bone dry cappuccino, it is all foam, no milk. Hmm. And if you want a wet cappuccino, you like milk mixed in with the froth. You just kind of want to let it happen on its own. Got it. A good barista who knows how to have froth milk will do a free pour, can free pour both a dry or free pour both a wet cappuccino. And it, it like steaming milk is in of itself an art, an art form. It really is. And that's where latte art comes from, because you, if you stir the coffee the right way with the foam, you can like, t- t- make an image, like the heart or a, a leaf, or hmm. sometimes even three-dimensional ones where they sculpt the foam into making it look like something else. That's crazy. Oh, it's unbelievable. Huh. Uh, one of my friends, Tim, is a latte artist. Uh, really? It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really cool, the stuff. He posts pictures of stuff he's done all the time. That's cool. On Facebook. Uh, it's, it's really cool. So there you have your coffee. There you have your cappuccino. Right, But there's also espresso macchiato. And what's the difference of that? That's just a shot of espresso with a dollop of foamed milk on it. Macchiato, the Italian word for marked. Right? So you got that. And then also you got your Cafe Americano. Well, where did that come from? Well, Cafe Americano, again, America leading by ignorance, (laughs) uh, when World War II soldiers were stationed in Italy... They thought espresso was too strong, so they were watering it down. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what it is. It's espresso and in, in just hot water to, to uh, loosen the flavor of it. And Americano is actually a derogative term for how they like to call the coffee because it was not the true Italian way of drinking espresso. Ironically, I love Cafe Americano. It's my favorite coffee drink uh, because you get you know, a decent volume of, of, of liquid, but you get the crema. The nice foamy, natural occurring head of the uh, espresso shot uh, still very much present at the top, and when you mix that with half and half or a heavy cream, there are fewer things on this earth that are t- that are as uh, awesome as that.
1: Well, there you go. In this case, it wasn't ignorance. It was a it was a Bob Ross phenomenon. It was a it was a happy accident. <laughs> happy accident. Happy accident. <laughs> America's known for happy accidents too. I'd say.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, if in case you guys were ever wondering where the espresso drinks' names came from, there you have it.
1: Well, real quick, can I just add on to the sure. the origin of the name coffee for a moment? Sure. Because I know Go you ahead. mentioned it a little earlier, being derived from Arabic, but I just kind of want to, you know, add a little, another layer to it. Uh, because originally it was called koalat al-bun, and uh, this means
0: wine of the bean. Thank you for getting there. Yeah, because kave is actually a uh, contraction of the term you just expressed. Yeah,
1: Kwa koa in in Arabic then gets uh, borrowed into Turkish. Yeah. Cave
0: Which is what. So sorry, I'm, I misspoke. I said Arabic. I meant to say Turkish. Turkish.
1: Which got borrowed by the Dutch into coffee,
0: right. which becomes it coffee in English. Exactly. With a K. Yes. A hard there K. There was an etymology yeah. of the word, and I didn't go into it. So thank you for filling that in. And folks, you know, coffee just kind of naturally spread. Coffee houses to this day. Are still places where people of all social classes, and have always been places of where both high and low class people get to go to commiserate around this drink that seems to unite people together.
1: And not just coffee, but tea as well. You know, I'd say both of these drinks together really make up medical, social... You name it, these revolutions, if you will. I mean, they, they've all led to, to the expansion of entire
0: empires, to the fighting of wars. And they have bound people together in times of, of these great duresses, right? Because I remember during the Depression, not that I remember firsthand, <laughs> but I remember from the research I've done from just the Depression, that coffee and tea were staples, right? You could always at least expect to have at least coffee or tea. Yeah, That was the one thing you could like fall back on that made you feel good you can get coffee for a nickel at one point yeah they were rationed certainly
1: but they were they were important they had to be rationed because they were so important yes so what a what a fascinating topic this evolved into
0: and we never even talked about how like corporate coffee started happening so that's i think a whole other episode
1: yeah i mean yeah we just we don't have the time for it and uh, listeners we would love to hear your opinions on coffee and tea uh we would love to see how it's impacted you how it's impacted the culture that you're from, because we know we have listeners from around the world. And obviously we couldn't get to everything that we uh, could possibly talk about with both of these subjects today. So please do give us uh, that great listener feedback. You know that we always read it on air, and uh, we'd love to hear uh, your impressions on Coffee and Tea. I
0: would, and I'd like to start to close this with a a little public service announcement, if if I may. One of the things that I was very proud of at working at Starbucks was it was the first company I worked at that actually had a conscience. Now, no company is perfect, of course, and every company has made mistakes. But Starbucks, particularly when Howard Schultz took the helm in the, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, he, his mindset was he wanted to get the best experience possible for everybody involved, not just for the customer, but for the employee and for the grower that they get their coffee from. There are basically, folks, two kinds of, of coffee beans species, Arabica and Robusta. Robusta is kind of what Folgers does. It's kind of the cheaper brand of, of coffee bean. It's easier to grow, cheaper to sell. It doesn't create as great of a flavor profile. Uh, Arabica coffee beans, which is what Starbucks entirely does, as well as a lot of the more uh, gourmet coffee houses like Pete's, for example, they use 100% Arabica coffee beans because it gets a full, more full flavor. That's not the point. That's part of it. The other part of it is how is the amount that Starbucks pays for its coffee. Yeah. Starbucks coffee is more expensive. It's twice as expensive actually as what you would get from your from your grocery store. That's because the grocery store is paying half of what they should be paying to the farmers who grow that coffee. So while not all the coffee at Starbucks is fair trade certified, in fact only one uh, coffee they sell is in fact actually got the certification stamp on it, Starbucks follows the same standards with all of their coffee, hmm. with getting, getting a fair price from their farmers. So if you buy your coffee from Starbucks and this is a shameless ad for Starbucks. I don't mean that to, to be that way. As well as some other companies, pretty much, you know that uh, you are getting a de- decent deal to those farmers. Um, I only buy fair trade coffee, and I get mine from Trader Joe's. I don't have to. I don't go to Starbucks for it, uh, anymore, even though I love the brand still. Um, the point I'm trying to get at is think about it when you go and buy your coffee or tea the next time. See if you can find a fair trade model, because you know it's important to know where your food is coming from and uh, who, what hands helped make that deliverable to you personally.
1: And there are also several uh, available free
0: trade tea
1: Companies that you can purchase fair from trade as well. t-
0: exactly yeah mm-hmm. in fact if you go to fair trade, the fair trade organization you can find out there's fair trade chocolate there's even fair trade cotton that you can get for for clothing
1: and if you'd like to visit that the website is www.fairtradeusa.org
0: thank you uh, a lot of what we talked about tonight I referenced from the uh, National Coffee Association which is NS uh, sorry dot in case you're interested uh, there's also the Wco the World Coffee organization. You can go and look up some interesting stuff about that as well. Sir, this has been a really cool episode to do. I get to share another passion of mine that has been latent. Uh,
1: And it was a great learning experience for myself because I learned so much about uh, a drink that uh, I really didn't know about. And it gave me really interesting insight into into the East. In fact, I want to really touch on some more topics in that part of the world. And now that we're coming up on uh, year two... Of Nerdonomy. Hard to believe. We're almost yeah. we're almost finished our first year on the
0: air. Like I got to say, yeah. And I was really happy that we had seven pieces of feedback because this is our 50th episode. And to think how far we've come in 50 episodes where we can devote a sizable amount of time to our episode to engaging with our listeners is just awesome. And we'd like to continue that engagement. So please, if you can, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at The Brickmont. And, of course, our company Twitter is at Nerdonomy. You can follow us on our Facebook page. And uh, go to our website, nerdami.com, where you have lots of cool things you can check out, like uh, our merch page for giving us t-shirts. Uh, we are a user-supported podcast, as well as our Nerds on Film one. So if you want to give us a donation, you can do that through uh, the donate button that's on our page. Uh, it's through PayPal. And, and
1: uh, just to mention, we're also free trade in regards to our t-shirts as well. They're actually they all are made, made in the, in the United, United States. States.
0: Exactly. Continuing the, the the ethical agenda here. Exactly. There's lots of cool stuff. Check out our blog there, too. You know, there's, we, That site, as we're talking about, the new one that's going to be launching is going to be packed full of content for you guys to go follow.
1: And on Facebook, we have uh, weekly trivia and quizzes and other opportunities for you to earn some, some cool opportunities to have your shout-outs here on Nerdonomy. So uh, thanks very much. Keep on, uh, keep on connecting with us. We want to hear from you, folks.
0: And until we meet again, stay nerdy, folks. And tune in next week. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Aeronomy.com. Goodbye.